I've noticed that uh, the software has been a little bit sketchy this week, doing weird stuff. So I think they're undergoing some updates. So sorry about that. So how's everybody doing out there today? Looks like Gary's having a glorious day. Will is rainy but cool in Florida. Chris is going golfing right after this session. Is it, yeah. Well, in Canada, it must just be ice golfing, right? That's just me being ironical. Yeah, Don was at Loon on Saturday. Oh, Vin is back. Let's give Vin a chance to get signed on here. Excellent. Well, uh, what I wanted to do now? today... Yep, I can hear you now, Vin. Yep. Cool. Getting signed on there. Yeah, it's been a little bit funny. It's been kicking me off every now and then, too, so. Strange. Chris says it's sunny in Scotland. That's good to know. So I have a little bit of a cold today, so I'm at home trying not to cover the office in germs. That's my story. Sunny in Scotland. Chris Edinburgh. Is that really your name, Chris? <laughs> Edinburgh, the last name. Pretty, it's pretty thematic if it is. It really is. <laughs> so where did we leave off last week? Who remembers? I sort of remember. We had some uh, Chris from Edinburgh. That's right. There you go. Cheating the system there. <laughs> um, but there you go. So we left off last week. Um, we had lots of sort of essential things every piper should know, but nobody really talks about. Um, and we left off with a few big topics we still had to cover. Uh, tying on drone cords was one of them. Carl, I don't know if you're out there, but are you able to walk us through the process that you use? Absolutely. I am. Let me just get my camera going here. So I'll take a little trip to my place of work. <laughs> Carl's workshop. Yeah. I also it's need my... I'm quite the sanctuary over the years. <laughs> <laughs> You've got millions right. in there doing all his work. Yeah, I wish, right? That'd be kind of cool. So, here we are. Here's my my uh, set of bagpipes here that will will tie on some cords, um, and I'll I'll use like bright. A, uh, is that just like a set of bagpipes laying around there, Carl? Like, what's up with that? Oh yeah, totally. Um, totally, just laying around. Um, yeah, this is this is one of our customers' sets uh, that will need a set of drum cords here. Let's just flip these around. All right, and I can kind of show you what I do here. I use bright green zip ties so you can see. We generally like to use um, ones that will blend in here, but uh, you can also stitch them on if you're really, really um, yeah, diligent. But, uh, <laughs> nice recovery, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I usually start with, uh, I don't know, six inches before you get to the little... Um, tassel here, and that's what I'll start with on the outside tenor. I don't like them too long there. So it's important to pull these things tight, but I'll put one on here, and I've got, you know, six inches or so um, before I get to the tassel. And this will start with our outside tenor. And I think that's, I just, that's the most important uh, first point, which is. Yeah, start with the outside tenor, and just about six inches is what you need on the uh, on the starter, right? Yeah. And so I'll get this one started here, and then I'm going to pull against that um, this way. So I'm using the, the one I already put on as kind of a stop. Uh, and then I'll tighten this one so that it's even on either side. It's not like shorter on the top or the longer on the bottom. Um, they're equidistant here around that, so that's nice here, and straight. Here's a question for you, Carl. Here's a question. Do you always start with the outside tenor first? I always start with the outside tenor first. Yes. I typically well, maybe the other way. Yeah, I, I, I typically start with the bass one because a lot of chords are not the same length. I mean, these days I think they're more uniform, but um, some chords are shorter than others, some are longer than others, so if you have a, you're setting up your bass, 
with the right amount of cordage, whatever's left over is typically what's hanging, which could be six inches. It could be usually if you do it right, it could be six inches. But um, yeah, I, I always start with the base, but that's just me. I think there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I always do it this way, and I haven't. Sometimes you have to redo it, but generally, this works for most uh, chords these days. So now there's a lot of um, debate on how big this space is supposed to be between the first tenor and the second. Um, some say you use you, your hands from center to center. Um, I don't know, you can't quite see. Yeah, a hand spread is always the traditional way, it's sort of a, you know, spread your hands. My, I always found that's too much for me, so I just sort of, yeah. a casual spread is usually what I use. Just I agree. Um, I'm going to put, uh, in, what, maybe five inches here um, onto the next one. And it's a little adjustable here, but, uh, you know, that's going to give me just a comfortable hand spread, not like super far apart. Because you don't want your drones at, you know, a 90 degree angle off your shoulders so that one tenor is pointing straight out, you know, that would be, that would be goofy. So here we are with the second one, same deal. Just going to pop these on here, pull it tight, and then you really want to make sure you pull on, on these uh, zip ties so they get nice and tight. In fact, you can even use a pair of pliers to help pull on these to make sure they're tight, and that way they won't slip off later on, and it's just easier that way. Okay, now this gets a little bit more interesting. I'm going to put the same um, distance gap here in the next one, same or slightly less, because ideally you want these, um, the tenor, the two tenors and the base, the top of the base, to be the same distance apart, so that they're all equal and you get a good blend of sound. Um, so in order to do that, this joint um, to the base is going to be just slightly shorter, if not the same size. Um, you don't want, certainly don't want to be any longer. So I'm just estimating this here again. It's another hand spread-ish. And then I don't put twists in between the chords. I like them straight, personally. Um, it's kind of up to you. Now this one, goes, you put it in a couple twists to them. Yeah, I got a couple twists. Yeah. So this one goes in the center section, um, right below the projecting mount. Um, there you are. You can see it there. And this one, you want to be careful not to make it too tight against the wood, because otherwise it won't really spin when you're trying, or, uh, yeah, when you're tuning your drones and the cords will kind of wrap up, um, and that's not good. It's just a pain in the butt. So this one's just a tiny little bit loose so that it's free to turn here. It's very easy to turn Oops. back and forth, nice, nice and loose, but still not going anywhere. Now here's where the magic happens. You've got this really long bit now, and it has to attach up here still. And then you've got this tail, which you're somehow supposed to tie along with the cords. So here's what I do. I start down here where I've attached it um, to the center section of the base. And I tie a little slip knot here. And so if I pull on this, it comes right out. It's just a loop, uh, and then I pull a loop right through. Amazing. You really do that? Yeah. And now wait. Here's what we do with this. Uh, we stick the other end through that and pull it tight. Now I have this um, end comes through uh, freely and I'm able to then attach this loop here at the top so that it naturally hangs down. membership to the Boy Scout who can name the knot that Carl just used. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's just a simple slip knot. I don't know. Um, so there you go. Vin does not have the authority to give out. <laughs> so let me do that again for you, and then I'll finish this up here so you can see the finished product. But I like this method better than 
um, tying it after, tying some knot afterwards, because inevitably that knot will end up working to the top and it gets stuck somewhere around here, and then this cord's too long and it's flapping around during um, mass bands and you get it caught in with somebody else. This is a really efficient way to use up extra space. So I'm just taking a twist here and then pulling through the cord, and you want this knot to end up right in the middle between um, the two sections here. Then I take the end and pass it through the loop I just made and pull it tight. And now we're just going to slip it over the top here. Two zip ties. This is out and, of this world. <laughs> and then again, this one doesn't want, you don't want this one too tight because if it's too tight, your bass drum will wrap the cord up um, as you tune it, and that's not uh, it's a pain in the butt. So yeah, just make sure this turns freely. But it also and there you are. Or it'll come loose, right? So that one's sort of a delicate one. Right. Um, yeah, it, you don't want it to come out of the the section here, but it still needs to turn very easily. So there you are. It should hang more or less right in the, the center of uh, the bass drum. It's a nice short um, length here, so it's not going to be uh, trouble for you when you're, you're marching around. It doesn't swing around too much, but it still looks nice. Um, it looks like you know what you're doing, and it, it's, it's really good. Um, and you'll notice maybe this is a little too far up. I could retire it if I wanted by just taking these off and moving that knot a little bit back. but. That's uh, the general process I use. It never falls out. That's the other nice part. This knot will never fall out um, until you untie it from here. So That's there you go. What about That's taking how them, I what about them. them off, Carl? Do you have any tips for that? Like one of the, it's easier yeah, to if cut you it. Change, your you change the color of your cords. You gotta like cut those ties and yeah. Let there. me find my. Uh, it should be noted if you come up with the sort of spacing that you like and you're changing your cords, I've always, when I do that, is just take the old cords, leave a tie on the tenor or the bass, and just start there with the new cord. And use the same, and you basically have the same measurements. Sorry, I'm just looking for my, my cutting tool here. Uh, and then I will show you two ways of taking them off. Hmm. Lee uses large nail clippers. Ah, here it is. Yes, large nail clippers, also known as um, really, really large finger or digit removers. So those are also handy um, for students that are late to lessons or exactly. uh, yeah. miss homeworks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is just a razor blade that's on um, on a set of. Clippers. I mean, uh, you can buy this at the hardware store. It's nothing too special. I just like it because it gives it a nice sharp way of cutting it off. So here's method one. Using this or or like any um, uh, wire clippers, anything like that. I'm gonna go for the square box on um, on the zip tie. I'm gonna try and get rid of that without cutting any of uh, the cords. So I carefully position it so that I'm going to cut the top off of the box. And it's, it's really kind of hard to see here. But maybe you can see the result. So I've cut the very top off the, um, the box here that the uh, zip tie went through so that there's really nothing um, I haven't gotten very close to the cords um, I just cut the top off and then these things pop right off so that's method number one um, again here you're just trying to isolate the cord and I'm pulling against the cord here um, so that when I cut there's nothing that uh, that could possibly cut the cord here's method one Method two takes a little bit more um, 
I don't know, time perhaps, but it's uh, safer if you don't have a tool like that. Safer for the chords, maybe not for yourself. <laughs> um, inside these zip cords, there's a little plastic tongue that holds the zip tie in place. And you can take a knife and just bend that back out of the way. Um, and that takes a little doing, but once you do, then the zip cord will come right off. I'm willing to say that the zip cord, the zip tie, is probably a modern invention that has revolutionized piping as much, if not more, than the drum reed, the synthetic drum reed. <laughs> Why? What else do you use them for, Ben? <laughs> Zip, well, I mean, it's just like back back in the day, everyone used waxed hemp, right? You sort of wax your hemp and sort of wrap it around, and it's it doesn't move, and then it, because it's hemp, it shrinks, it expands, and so it gets loose, and then you have that's why you always see those old pictures like drones hanging, like with like you know an arm's length off the edge of the shoulder, and it's it's crazy. Yeah. All right, there we are. This one's loose now, um, and you could either clip it. I mean, if you had trimmed these off in the first place like that, I would have had this off already. So there you are. And that basically, I'm just undoing, um, undoing it. And see, you can see the tongue there. Basically, I'm just bending that back, and then um, it comes right out. So there you are, two methods. Excellent. Awesome. Are there any questions uh, about tying on drone cords? It's really not too bad. Um, for me, it's all about getting started with that six inches on the outside tenor, and then from there, Usually, even if you don't know the special trick at the end, you can usually come out with something that looks nice from there. Right. Ashby still ties the drone cords on. You don't like zip ties, huh? They come in all colors. You think all the match and blend in and be invisible. <laughs> Brian says using um, flush cutting diagonal cutters so you don't have a sharp edge. Um, even those sometimes can uh, can can cut that cord uh, or just fray it a little bit. So uh, whatever you use, just try and keep it away from the cords um, and, and destroy the box, if you will, at the top. Instead of trying to cut just anywhere in the middle, and you're gonna have the potential of pinching or cutting the cord. So just just uh, do something to destroy that box, which sticks out a little bit from the cords, and you'll be all set. Cool. Absolutely. So um, refresh my memory about what we're talking about tempo-wise. Does anybody remember? I'm a little bit groggy today. Putting Vin up. There's Vin. Today is a good day to pipe. Um, what was it about tempos that we needed to talk about? I think it was somebody was asking about tempos when starting out or something. Um, sure. It looks like a couple of people are typing. Different tempos for different types of tunes. There really is nowhere it's listed in a list form, like sort of easily accessible. Do you guys have that? Where you've listed sort of sort of comfortable playing tempos for different time signatures? No, and, and the the reason is is because I uh yeah, I don't like I don't like the common a, you know, common thought process and thinking about tempos. Uh, let me uh, arrange this window here, and I'm I'm going to walk you through my tempo strategy here. And if you don't like it, then uh, that's okay. I think you will though. I just got to bring up some notes. Add new notes. Here we go. All right. So here's the deal with the tempo. First of all, my big thing about tempo is that there are, there should be, and there are no rules to how fast or slow you should play a tune. Okay, now there are commonly accepted tempos um, that we need to carefully think about, right? Um, Gary says the importance of tempo for beginners, and I'm, I'm going to get there as well. So here's the deal. Let, first of all, we'll talk, we'll talk about pipe band tempos first. We'll talk about solo tempos after, but it's the same general formula. So if you look at 
uh, world champion pipe bands. Uh, we'll call them world champion-esque pipe bands. Like, you know, obviously Field Marshal is the only band that really wins lately. Uh, but uh, there are lots of other bands, let's say, in the top six. And and here here you go for tempos, right? Two, we'll start with two, four marches, roughly 80 beats per minute. Uh, Strats Bays, uh, roughly 120 beats per minute. Reels, roughly 80 beats per minute. Like this is sort of the average, okay? Uh, jigs, roughly uh, 120 to 124 beats per minute, depending on the style. Uh, round reels that they play in medleys. Round reels or round hornpipes that are played in medleys are roughly the same um, eighth note value there. So I think it's like roughly like 86 beats per minute or something like that. Okay, so, so uh, you know, these are the common tempos that we, uh, that we see in world champion-esque pipe bands. Now, here's, here's my problem with the way that we think about tempo in the world, okay, which is, okay, guys, Field Marshal Montgomery is playing at two four marches at 80 beats per minute, so we need to go home and practice these tunes at 80 beats per minute. Now, um, there's 39 people out there. Can you guys type in and just brainstorm what sort of problems are going to arise if we go home and practice at 80 beats per minute? Are we going to have any problems, or is that just the way we need to go? Um, yeah. So Mary says less accuracy. Lee says they are not Field Marshal Montgomery. Articulation errors. Control technique will go down the drain. Unison will go away. Why is that? You know, you're you're right about all these things. Why is that the case? Their technique is better and allows them to play at increased tempo. Steve says. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Let's not say their technique is better, but let's just say if we take an example of Field Marshal Montgomery, right? And this is all just basic logic. This isn't I'm not telling you anything you couldn't figure out on your own, but. Uh, by very nature of the fact that this is the best pipe band in the world, we can assume these are also the pipers with the best fundamentals in the world, at least generally speaking, right, these bands at the top. So there's two big factors here. Factor number one, okay, that we have to consider is these are the best fundamental players, or the, how about the best players of fundamentals in the world. Okay. Otherwise known as they're pretty good. They're in the top absolute 1%. Okay. That's factor number one. Now, here's another factor to consider. Okay. Um, this tempo, right, or these tempos are also by nature the fastest any of these bands will play all season long. That's factor number two. Now, why do you think that might be the case? Okay, well, anyone who's ever played anywhere in public knows that when you're in performance mode, what happens to your nerves and therefore what happens to the tempos as you play? Do the tempos go down? Do they become more relaxed and controlled? Or when the nerves arise, do things become faster and, uh, you know, um, you probably get more nervous. Right. Mary says adrenaline. And even though, see, the, my point, Chris, is even like take a person like myself or Carl or Vin, we have lots of experience playing at a high level. But, guys, what happens when we play in a performance situation? Do tempos go up, down, or stay the same? That was a question. Feel free to answer me. <laughs> well, they, do, they definitely they definitely creep up. That's for sure. They definitely creep up, right? And the more experienced you are, the more subtle that will be. But here's my point: is 80 beats per minute in a two-four march is the fastest Field Marshal will play all year, and and the fastest they will practice per year will never be 80 beats per minute. I'm willing to bet, and I, certainly any high-level band I've been involved in, that's also the case. Right. So anyway, here's here's the long point that I'm getting around to when it comes to tempo is that, first of all, 
the tempo that we accept as being standard tempo for 2-4 marches is not the standard tempo, right? The standard tempo, even for field marshal, is probably like 76 or 77, and that's at the height of competition season. Do they start practicing at that tempo early in the year? Probably not, right? Early in the year, they probably start even slower than that, and only gradually over the months do they work up to even 76 beats per minute in a march. And then when they perform, it probably goes up a couple more clicks to get to that 80 beats per minute that we well, know. All you have to do is, is listen is listen to the videos of field marshals say at the was it the British Championships at at fours and uh and the Worlds. <laughs> just do that. Listen to their MSR, you know, um, yeah. and you'll see. You know, you just hear it right away. What's interesting, you know, what's interesting and frustrating to me. So. So I'm trying to bring this full circle and failing a little bit. But what's interesting to all of this about uh, for me is let's I have students that play in at the grade three level, right? Now grade three at very best. Uh, let's let's actually move on to you know we could talk about solo tempos. So let me get rid of this solo tempos, right? Let the very best soloists in the world two four marches are slower well well slower than bands like maybe max tempo on a two four march. Is like 70, right? Stress bays uh, are still roughly 120. Reels, uh, roughly 80. The marches are the are, are the biggest stylistic difference. Those, so those tempos have slowed down over the years too. A lot yeah. of players these days play a lot slower even than that. And you listen to sort of recordings from the they say the 70s or 80s. And, much faster. It's like that was yeah. just that was the way it was, you know. Exactly right. And and people are badgered and bullied. People are badgered and bullied into thinking their tempos are too slow. But here's another thing I want you to think about, right? In the best case scenario in the entire world, right? Uh, grade four takes one year. Grade like I'm just talking about solo progress, right? Grade three takes another year. Grade two takes another year. Right, and at the absolute minimum, grade one probably takes two years, and then you're professional, okay? Which takes, you know, uh, and then that's probably like another two to five years before you're like a super pro, right? And like what I mean by super pro is a guy that's going to go over and start to set the bar for solo temples, right? Like you'll go over to Scotland and you'll be like a super pro, right? So here's the thing. If you're in grade four, right, how many years before you're going to be a super pro? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven at the absolute minimum and probably closer to 10 years. And this is the absolute best case scenario from, from a beginner stage to a super advanced stage, right? absolute minimum of seven years. So why are we even, you know, why are we even thinking about being at 70 beats per minute for a 2-4 march yet? You know, it's like, let's say, you know, let's, even if you did 2% per year, right? Let's go 2% per year is what you work up to as far as fundamental technique improving and reaching for higher tempos. Well, take 10, take 10 years Multiply it times 2%, and you should be playing in grade 4 20% slower, I think, than the globally accepted 2-4 March tempo here, right? This is just how I, how I sort of justify the tempo that I teach my students. So what's 20% slower than 70 beats per minute? Um, I think it's 54, but I'm going to do my math because sometimes it's screwy. 70 times 0.8. Or, yeah, 56 is what I meant, right? I'm sorry, I said 54, I meant 56. But so there you go, 56 beats per minute is probably what I'm thinking about in grade four. Just Let's just say generally speaking, right? And what the interesting thing is you take grade three, and that's only 2% more than that, right? So that's maybe closer to 58. And then, you know, again, uh, 58 is a good tempo. Then by the time you perform, you'll be up to 60. Well, and here, yeah, so Will is asking the million-dollar question. Would judges ever hold a slower tempo against you? And the answer is absolutely. So check this out. Let me grab a metronome here. Um, so here is 56. Sounds something like this. 
Now, grade four, you're probably fine at 56. Here's a grade four, too. Um, you know, just here's a super simple one. Right? That's pretty, if you play like that uh, in a solo competition, in grade four, you'd probably be all right. It wouldn't be the end of the world, but you'd still have judges being like, I feel like this is a little bit slow, which is, of course, total, uh, I won't say the four-letter C word there, but it's total junk, right? Not good. Uh, not good for judges to be pressuring people to be playing too fast at that level, right? Now, um, if you take other tunes, right, or if we, let's go up a year, right? Remember, we have 10 years till we're super pro. So grade three, 2% higher. So let's let's even round up to 58. So here's you know here's a grade three tempo. Uh, let's see what's a good tune. Good grade three tune here. I wonder. Uh, good one is how about? So there's Hugh Kennedy. Now, that's a great tempo. I think if we could do that steadily, we'd be good. Another problem is tempo control and timing, which is a totally different issue. Uh, but that's that would be my strategy, right? My strategy for reaching the top tempos. Okay? Now, um, and, and all the time, judges are pressuring people to play faster. Um, I'm always pre I'm I'm always pressuring the fast people to play slower. Like, dude, you know, Don, so. had, and Don had his judges at, at Loon say he was too fast. Yeah, well, I mean... Which could mean that you were just past the tempo that you were comfortable playing at, too, which is probably what they're trying to say, but judging typically relies on the shorthand of saying, oh, you're too fast, you know, when there's a yeah. lot of stuff in there that could probably be communicated better, <laughs> you know, than saying, oh, you're playing too fast, you know. Yeah, and here's the other thing, right? Now, now there's another factor to this, right? So, uh, so anyway... Let's go back to saying grade four. 56 max performing tempo based on my little formula that I did, right? So where do we want to practice? Our practice tempo should be, well, how much do you think you'd increase with adrenaline, right? You know, like, so anyway, subtract at least two. And that would be max practice tempo. And then here's the other thing is developmental tempos, right? Like, let's say, uh, I don't know, developmental. And my point would be, as we develop our tunes, we need to practice even slower, right? We're not going to start learning a tune at 54 beats per minute. Right? So developmental tempos, right? Maybe, uh, you know, subtract 5% uh, each, uh, each three months or something. I don't know. You'll have to figure it out. But my point is we need to develop these tunes and learn them even slower than that. And then we gradually work the tempo up as we approach the performance time. Now, don't, don't get me wrong, guys. I'm not sitting there crunching numbers. But what I am doing is I am thinking, I am occasionally checking in with my grade four max performing tempo of 56, and I'm saying, all right, if my student needs to work up to this tempo, here's what we need to do. I'm not necessarily crunching numbers, but why not? Do yourself a little spreadsheet. Get that thing going. Yeah, and, and, but it's important, even if you're doing it for yourself, um, it's, a, you know, even if you're keeping in mind, oh, I need to be slower than this, you know, even whatever tempo you're, you're playing at, do it slower, you know, it just as a sort of a general benchmark, if you always have that in mind, I need to develop this at a slower speed or a slower tempo, if you're keeping that in mind, you're just, you're naturally going to go a percentage, you know, whatever that is, but it's going to yeah. be something that at least can get you in the right place, you know. Kurt says, is that true for stress, bays, and reels? And the answer is, for stress bays, it's probably the most true and the most frustrating, right? So stress bays have to be at 120 beats per minute, right? No, that's max 
That's max superstar speed. Okay? And we can even round up to 124. Like, we need to do that 2% per year again. So in grade 4, by the way, you'll notice you don't have grade 4 Strass Bay Real. And there's a pretty good reason for that because Strass Bay can be really demanding. But let's say we're, we are at the grade 4 beginner level. Subtract 20% equals, and I don't know, I'll, do, I'll use my calculator again. Uh, 120 times 0.8. There you go. 96 is the max performance speed in grade four. If you want my humble opinion about how people are actually going to be able to develop. By the way, this is true for a grade four band too. Now, what does that sound like? Well, Ninety-six max performance tempo, right? Right. So that's you know a very simple stress bay. That's the max performance speed we would ever consider for. Uh, competing at a grade four intermediate level. You know, grade three, right, that might translate through add another 2% or whatever. You know, you can call it roughly 100 beats per minute. Yet, if, if a grade three player plays a Strass Bay at roughly 100 beats per minute, they're pressured really hard to get the tempo up. But that doesn't make any sense. Why should a grade three player be asked to play at a faster tempo? And, and you know, and, and then players who do play faster are, you know, rewarded for that. I think, I think that lacks foresight. doesn't make sense to me. Two, two okay. questions, Andrew. Chris Byrne oh, and yeah. Tony DeVore have two excellent questions. I think we can roll in there as we keep explaining. Okay, so Chris Byrne and Tony, you said? Yeah. So Chris says, maybe it's just me being a new piper, but when I go to the pipes, are you talking about 56 beats per minute? Yeah, I think that's what he's saying. Then at 70, it changes blowing so much, I guess. To play at the different okay. speed. So the answer is um, you you do not need to change your blowing at all, regardless of what tempo you play. Right now, it may seem that way, but that's a result of poor fundamental blowing technique, right? The pressure will stay the same regardless of the tempo and regardless of anything that you play. However, a very common thing is when we crank the tempo up, we become so focused on trying to survive our technique that we completely forget about all of the good blowing technique that we were able to do at slower tempo. Yeah, yeah. it is about experience. Chris, I think Chris has got a practice regimen that he's not decided to set up for himself because I think that's um, a good way yeah, but of at the practicing, same time, you know. But at the so, same time, Chris Chris should not be attempting to play at 70 beats per minute yet, no, right? No, exactly. That's that's you know that the point is proving the case or whatever, right? Which is Chris, um, you want to stay at 56 because it's not just about finger work, is it? It's also about getting a tune to come out musically on a nice sounding bagpipe. So you you're, so your so your practice becomes you know blowing steady at that tempo, right? Whatever tempo it is. Absolutely. 50, 60, whatever. And, uh, yeah, and the you know there. pipe bands, all all you people in pipe bands out there, right? Don't forget, it's not just about playing your finger work at eight, you know eighty beats per minute. Terrible idea. Slow it down. Play good fundamental finger work technique and produce a glorious sounding instrument. This is the pathway to success. Yeah, exactly, exactly right, Chris. So that's an awesome question. Um, it's a slightly different topic. We we talk about physical blowing technique at the dojo, which is the the physical aspect of blowing, squeezing, and keeping everything steady. But there's also a mental component. Nothing that we play on on the chanter should have any effect whatsoever on blowing. But as we know, that's very unrealistic, right? Because blowing, you know, it's so tempting to change what what's happening with the blowing based on different technique or struggling with tempo or whatever. So Tony says at a slower tempo, I have trouble getting the gracing in the appropriate timing. 
That's exactly right. So if you're having trouble getting it timed properly at a slower tempo, then um, how do you expect to be able to play it well at a faster tempo? And if you're under the impression that speeding it up helps the control, that's, that's not true. Just objectively, it's impossible. Um, faster tempo can help cover up the fundamental problems, which, by the way, I think is what a lot of bands and soloists are trying to do. And it's, and it's a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, it's, um, people are taught that way, too, especially in bands. They, uh, they tend to learn playing at the speeds, even though they might, and it, which might be inappropriate for sort of the grade level band you're playing in. And as a result, you learn really kind of bad habits, poor fundamentals in terms of, you know, sort of just articulation and scale navigation and all of that stuff. Um, and, that, and that seeps into your playing, which then sort of like, then you have to unlearn almost if you're going to be doing this kind of thing, which is slowing down tempos and really working on fundamentals. And you have to sort of go back to the beginning, you know. Yeah. It's a, survival, it's a survival technique, right? If you're in a band and you're playing at a, at a faster tempo than you've developed at or you're comfortable with, you got to make some cut some corners in order to blend in properly, right? So that's going to mean, you know, sort of uh, sacrificing some technique and, and, and things like that. So, um, Absolutely. So Tom is saying you can double the metronome speed to have a better feel for where the beat is going to be, um, and which is a good technique to use, right? But only if the tempo is at such a slow uh, speed that you need that extra guidance. Because over time, we are going to want to implement some expression and what we call pulsing, stuff like that. So as the tempo start to approach maximum tempo, we need to make sure that we're back at single timing. That gives us a little more room to bend and stretch. And then Tom said he just watched the dojo video, which is right. Um, and we actually go the other way too, don't we? We sort of zoom out and we do one click every two beats or one click every four beats. And that's a way of testing our timing and stuff like that too. So yeah, the metronome can be a big help. But the bottom line with tempos is that um, if you think objectively about tempos and you stop listening to people who are pressuring you to play faster tempos, which by the way, may or may not be your pipe band, right? The pipe band is pushing fast tempos. Uh, that, that can be a big conflict of interest for you because you want to actually develop and get better. Um, so that's one of the big things. Uh, yeah, so you got to think cleverly about it. Uh, one of the things I tell my students when they come to me and they say, the judge said I played too, too slow. Um, and, you know, there's two things that are going on there. Number one, a lot of times slowing down is translated by the judge as playing too slow. So make sure that's not you. If someone says you're playing too slow, um, or, by the way, for some of us who, where they say tempos are too fast, well, is the issue that the tempo is too fast or is or slow, or is the issue that it's not controlled? So my students, a lot of my students, start off at a nice tempo, and then eventually the tempo starts to drop off like this. If they had stayed perfectly steady with the tempo, like they're supposed to be able to do, because they work a lot with the metronome, right? Well, not exactly, but they should. Um, if they stayed perfectly steady with the tempo, even though it's slow, a perfectly steady driving tempo is rarely going to be criticized by uh, a reputable judge. So that's number one. Now, number two is, the other important thing to think about is um, that this strategy, right, sticking to your guns with tempo, even though the judge might find it a little bit slow for their taste, right, you should be able to conquer every other fundamental skill to such a degree that, um, if, you know, in other words, if the worst thing the judge can say about your performance is that it's a little bit slow for their taste, that is going to be a winning performance. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, if the judge loves the tempo, but you had crossing noises, bad grace notes, sloppy embellishments, lack of expression, tempo inconsistencies, and no pulsing whatsoever, right? Well, which performance do you prefer as a performer or as the judge? You know, don't be afraid to stick to your guns and play the smart tempo. Yeah. And, and don't, and, you know, and I would say it takes a little nerve, too, but don't let the, a judge get away with just telling you something's too fast or too slow without some sort of explanation of maybe why it appears too slow or is it 
objectively too slow or too fast, or is are some of those things that Andrew said, like inconsistent tempos or inconsistent phrasing or something like that, where there's other fundamental things that might be going on. And if they haven't explained it, because I said you know, a lot of judges rely on kind of shorthand to sort of allow you to figure it out, don't let them get away with it. Go ask them, you know, what they meant by it, you know. So they're 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 going to help you. They're they're there to help you. So don't be afraid to do that. Um, so it takes a little nerve to do that sometimes, but um, it's definitely worth it because you don't know half the time what the judge means. Was it too fast? And you're thinking, well, that wasn't too fast. Maybe it was a little uncontrolled, or maybe yeah. uh, you know I was inconsistent in the third part, you know, or something like that. That sort of gives the impression that something's too fast. But if they're paying attention, they wouldn't necessarily say that without some sort of explanation. So. You know, it's all very interesting, you know, um, just to get slightly controversial for a moment, right? It's interesting that a test is required in order to become a judge, uh, but nowhere on the test is is the judge asked to differentiate between uh, tempo and, um, you know, tempo consistency versus tempo control, because that's a big thing, right? How many score sheets, how many score sheets are riddled with this nonsense, yeah. About, about things being too fast or too slow, yeah, when too really slow, the exactly. issue is with no with no sort of elaboration of of any kind, which is really kind of frustrating. Because yeah. you know yeah, you can play you can play on a, at a consistent tempo, but your phrasing could be all over the place, right? You could you could be playing phrases different ways and consistently open, crushed, well, whatever. Isn't what I'm talking about. I know, but I'm saying, but the tempo could be the same, you know, through that through all of that. So if you're saying too fast, then what does that really mean, you know? Right. And again, fast or slow, I mean, you know, that's a subjective opinion. Meanwhile, inconsistency in tempo is a very real thing and is a very real um, problem with a lot of performances. But people come away, like, you know, take my young students, for example, people come away thinking they're playing too slow. You're not playing too slow. You're just slowing down at times. Right. Otherwise known as bad sense of timing, not bad overall approach. Anyway, I digress. Um, let's talk a little bit about the psychology of beginning the pipes, or, or do we need to talk about strike-ins? What's the vote, guys? Strike-ins or psychology of beginning the pipes? We can do a couple of strike-in tips. We've got 10 minutes, right? So, psychology, that could be a show in itself, man. <laughs> I know. Striking in is kind of a big thing. John votes beginning the pipes. Nope, Tim votes strike-in tips. All right, here's what we'll do. Let's blab a little bit about beginning the pipes, and then next week we can talk about strike-ins. Because you're right, there's a lot we could talk about there. Yeah. Okay, you'll hear about strike-ins next week, Chris. We'll do that next week. Okay, so uh, beginning the pipes, right? So um, I forget who, but last week there was questions about how basically beginning the pipes is very daunting and difficult, and how do we get past some of these things? You know, like it's really easy to think. As a matter of fact, I got an email today uh, from someone who actually had been playing for a while, and they're just like, I'm out, not playing pipes anymore. I can't do this. Uh, it's, it's, it's daunting, right? It is. I mean, it definitely could be, uh, especially when you're starting out, to be uh, it's intimidating, right? It's not like playing a clarinet, you know. <laughs> so, you wish that could be frustrating too. But this is like there's all kinds of things going on that you got to worry about. You know, it's the whole body's involved. Yes. Here's what I think about. Here's what I think about uh, the psychology of learning the pipes. Which, by the way, I plan on I plan on solving this before <laughs> my death. It's one of my goals. Okay, uh, the psychology, part of the reason the psychology of learning the pipes is so challenging, right? We're faced with so many, uh, we're faced with so many temptations to quit and do something else. Uh, part of the reason, or the biggest reason for me is that the way that we learn the pipes doesn't make any sense. And it's dumb. And it's frustrating, you know, just by its nature. For example, I want to play the bagpipes. Okay, that's cute, Timmy. Good for you. Well, it's going to be at least a year before you can touch those. And instead, we're going to learn on this practice channel, which until you are absolutely perfect on this, uh, you're never going to be able to touch the pipes. Let's do it. You excited, Timmy? Oh, yeah. Timmy's like pumped, right? Timmy's pumped like, oh, yeah, this thing that I want to do, I'm not even going to be able to like think about doing until. That channel sounds so good. Oh, yeah. And, and pra don't, yeah, practice channel sounds awesome, right? 
Right? And then it's like, oh, Timmy, you have one crossing noise. So, Timmy, uh, it's going to be another several months before you can get on the pipes. Right? So, uh, my, my biggest thing my biggest thing about playing the pipes is that we don't actually get to play pipes for, like, a freaking year. And it's terrible. It's awful. So, um, you know, here's, here's my thing is we've got to ditch the idea that things have to be perfect before we can play the pipes. Okay? That, uh, and, I, and I really believe strongly. So I'm actually maybe challenging what John was saying here, which is beginning the pipes properly is so important. Okay. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that. I think that um, I think that getting on the pipes as soon as possible and horsing around and trying to make music is the most important thing. Okay. So uh, an obsession and, and becoming obsessed with perfection is bad. Okay, it's bad for teachers. It's bad for teachers to expect perfection, um, and it's bad for teachers to withhold bagpipes from students for so long. Or withhold anything, as Chris is mentioning. He's, he's got his, you know, people. You know, he kept getting notice about the next step, and then the next step, and so it's like you know, you have to master all these different things before you can move on to the next thing, which was probably like you know a drone read, <laughs> you know, in his drones or something, you know, and that's the key. Like it's like it's this sort of drawn out sort of carrot that's just sort of dangled in front of you, which is kind of frustrating. You know, I heard a, a while back, I heard, a, I read something, it was a, it was a key comment, it says, that said something like, that. It was, and it was by this like well-known conductor, it says, if you're sounding good in the practice room, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know, that's, and if you're starting out, that's really kind of what you got to keep in mind. You got to, you know, it's going to sound horrible, but you have to trust sort of in the process and, uh, and, and, hope for the return, you know, we can keep at it because it's there. Yeah. You know. There's two, there's, it's, it's a multifaceted problem, right? Now, the other thing that needs to, that, you know, that needs to be thought of when, when you're a beginner is that beginners should not be attempting advanced things while they are beginners. I, I feel very passionately about this. I hate that, it hates a strong word. Uh, I strongly dislike uh, when uh, tutor systems will teach, for example, a dethrow before you can even learn a tune. That doesn't make any sense. So what we really need to think about is, um, you know, what are the key things that we need to start to make music? And then we need to start to do those things. Um, I agree that, you know, um, it's interesting, Chris said, if he had known what he was in for uh, when he started playing the pipes, he probably wouldn't have started in the first place. Well, um, I think he probably yeah. would have. You just would have done it in a different way. Yeah, I mean every instrument is like that too. There's no instrument out there if, that, if when you start learning it, is going to be sort of easy. <laughs> you know, doesn't matter what it is. It's going. You're going. It's going to be a while. You're going to struggle. You're just going to sound awful, and and uh, and you just got to keep at it. That's anything. It doesn't matter what it is. Piano, guitar. You know. Yeah, um, exactly. And you have to you have to be able to poke around and and start to do stuff. And granted, a lot of your work is going to have to be on the practice channel, but at least a little bit of bagpipes is good. Uh, anyway. As far as the overall psychology, right, so we're, we all come to these points when we're really frustrated and we've hit that plateau and we're not getting any better. Well, for me, the biggest thing and one of the reasons we're here is because um, a, lot of, a lot of these problems are caused by not thinking properly or smartly about how we should be learning, right? For example... I can't tell you how many people come to me and say, I can't get the phrasing right in this tune. And you listen to the tune, and, um, you know, nine out of ten note changes are a crossing noise. The grace note quality is poor. The embellishment quality is poor. Um, the instrument sound is poor. And here this person is obsessed about dotting and cutting notes. Um, that happens all the time. And you should not be thinking about uh, the subtleties of expression until we have thought about, you know, the other basic fundamentals. You also should not be even attempting embellishments until you can competently navigate the scale, right? There's so many, so many like basic objective things that need to be thought about. And a lot of times we hit a plateau because, we'll, and we'll go back to the playing fast to cover up technique issue, right? We've hit the plateau because uh, there's no more cover-ups we can get away with. We're going to actually have to go back and address fundamentals. Now, learning properly, as someone said before, is really, really important. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, and this is if you're focused on the fundament fundamentals, 
you know, and you're worried about scale navigation and blowing the instrument and on the instrument, on the full instrument, if you're there, if that's what you're focused on, and then once you get to a point where you're competent at that, everything sort of falls into place after after things like that. Once, because now you're blowing the instrument, it's well set up. You're blowing the instrument. You're able to navigate the scale comfortably, and after that, it kind of picks up speed. <laughs> you know, once the fundamentals are in place, and you've actually sort of you know um, taking care of those, and you, and you feel good about them. They, things just start rolling, you know, and it just start, it takes and so those that return you've been looking for that you've been frustrated about getting suddenly becomes clear. Like you can see the you know the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? It's like it's, it's all starting to fall into place. Um, so that's that's the thing to keep in mind. You know, you got to sort of keep that and trust the process. You know? Absolutely. William says, "Where would you start a student with the pipes?" It's a good question. I'm a big fan of any of these options. Uh, drone, drones only is kind of cool. Goose is cool. But let's face it, right? If I'm little Timmy and I want to learn the pipes, or big Timmy, right? A lot of older people or middle-aged or even seniors want to learn the pipes, which is great. Uh, so if you're a beginning piper, what do you want to do? You want to get your hands on a set of pipes and you want to hear something happen. So what I'm a big fan of is um, I, you know, setting up a really, 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 really easy set of pipes, which, by the way, can be a little challenging but it can be done and should be done. So what I'm a big fan of is setting up the world's easiest set of pipes with drones and everything going, right? And what I like to do is play a couple of tunes for them on those pipes, get them all tuned up for them and say, all right, let's try, let's see if you guys can do it. That's the first thing. And I make sure it's easy enough that anyone can blow those things up, right? Anyone over the age of like six. Uh, and they can make like little notes come out yeah. and stuff like that. And it's like, all right, well, that was pretty cool. But now we're going to need to learn the, like the scale. And then, you know, we're going to need to learn some notes in order to make that the next level. So then we learn the scale. And then maybe at the end of the next lesson, it's like, all right, let's see if we can try some of that on the pipes. You know, you just always like for me, I just always have a little set there that we can do things with at the end of each lesson. It's like that carrot that keeps people in interested. Hey Chris, I thought well, you had to I was ready to. I was, I was, I was, I was ready to like reach through the computer internet and give him a cookie because he needed something <laughs> to make him feel better. But it looks like he's doing okay. So far behind them. You got to stick with it, man. You can't. You can't. Like, there's going to be. It doesn't matter how good you get, Chris. You're going to be there again. <laughs> it's that simple. You're gonna, you know, that the frustration and that kind of like feeling of like being in tears is it's gonna happen no matter how good you get. Like it's just, but you just gotta keep at it. You gotta like trust, trust what you know, um, and if you don't, go find more, you know, the stuff that you don't know, and uh, and and keep at it. You know, you always gotta always, cause, cause you can, always, but you can focus. do it. You can do it. Like that's the thing. Like you can do it once you realize you can do it. Then the other th challenges that sort of lay in front of you shouldn't be intimidating anymore because you realize, well, I got through this, so now I can get through that. And then once you get through that, you realize there shouldn't be anything that's scary anymore once you've been on the instrument for a while. And just continually uh, refocusing on fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not uh, – and uh, the ironic thing is, and I've been through this, Chris, the ironic thing is right now you're going to band and you're frustrated because of how far behind you are. Uh, but unless you're in a very high-level band, um, you're going to be you're going to far far surpass these folks with enough patience and focus on the fundamentals. You know, 90, 99 out of a hundred band pipers, right, are not doing the things they need to do. That, that, that's a little bit of a harsh. I would say at least half, right, are not focused on fundamentals, which is part of the problem, right? It's like. You know, they're they're focused on being ahead of others yeah. and all sorts of weird yeah, stuff. It's, like it's that. all linked together, right? It's like you know the things that you really want most out of your music, whether it's the band or you you personally, are all linked to those things, those fundamental things, right? So you you know if you it may seem like it's such a departure to focus on you know I know embellishments, you know, and articulation and things like that 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 you know you don't realize you're you're helping your own cause you know, in the things that you really want, which is a good musical performance, you know, by, by, you know, so if you, and likewise, if you don't focus on those things, you're hurting that ultimate goal too. So especially in a band, you know, they just start focusing on whether it's like we said, tempos or sounding like some other band or something. They just worry about that kind of stuff when they really should be focused on 
the basic stuff, the fundamentals, right? And getting everybody on the same page that way. Because that helps. That will bring about the performance that everybody wants. Absolutely. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. The last thing I will address is James says, how do I feel about people who don't play well and have really poor fundamentals but insist on continuing to perform? Okay, it's a little bit of a delicate balance there because I don't believe you should be perfect or even verging on perfect in order to perform. We need to get out there and we need to play uh, as often as possible. So I feel fine about that as long as the player is focused on uh, improving their performance, uh, you know, conceptually. And, and then generally speaking, I do not, I do not enjoy pipers who are just in there for the spectacle, have no interest in producing better music. Um, uh, I do not care for that. I think bagpipes are a musical instrument that we all should use um, to, uh, you know, to express ourselves. Yes, and you're never too old to worry about the, the basic things that help you do it well. Um, and I think it's about time that the dojo started offering AARP discounts, it looks like. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, good for you guys. You know, that's, that's exactly, you know, you do this because it is fun and it is satisfying. And, and working on the fundamentals, right, to do it well and competently is fun. That's what I've always thought. That, that makes it fun for me because you end up better in the process. That's that's what makes the whole thing fun. So. That that uh, fire alarm must mean it's time yeah, to end. It's time. To, it's time to go. I gotta run out. I got some, I got a rescue to make. <laughs> All right. So then you go rescue people, and uh, we will see you guys next week. We're gonna talk about strike-ins, and uh, see where it goes from there next week. Excellent. Have a good day. Just all. remember that. Uh, Remember, free classes, the all-new free classes are available at Dojo U. Make sure you check those out. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week.